Amen. Crossroads Church, good morning. How are we this morning? Everybody's awake. It's good. Well, I remember uh, the year was about 1985, and I was uh, about 10 years old, and I remember getting a set of pajamas for Christmas. And uh, every 10-year-old boy wants a set of pajamas for Christmas. But these pajamas were uh, something I really wanted because what was popular in 1985 was Superman. Because who remembers the 1970s, early 80s movies of Superman? And uh, I do, because I remember my pajamas. And so I got that set of pajamas, and I remember immediately putting those on and thinking that I had superpower because I wore the pajamas. And so I remember diving over the couches, and I was flying through the air, and uh, I was obsessed with this idea of supernatural power. And if you take a look at our society today and the movies that are produced in Hollywood, you guys have seen that obsession still lives in America, does it not? It lives all the way around the world. The Avengers series, right? All the superheroes that mankind can think of, all the powers, the supernatural powers. We are a, we are a culture that is obsessed with the idea of being able to transcend the natural and into the supernatural. We spend our time and our money and our resources obsessing about that concept, being excited about that concept. And as we come to our story in the book of Luke, chapter 21 this morning, the thing that really comes to my mind is that God wants us to obsess about the one who really holds those powers. He wants us to become infatuated with the idea of who Jesus is, of the power that he holds. We should have Jesus pajamas. I don't know that they make those. Maybe they do. I've never seen a kid wear them. It'd be interesting. But the reality is that Jesus displays everything that is supernatural. And in Luke chapter 21, we begin to see that the events that are described here in Luke, we're in the final week of Jesus' life, his ministry on earth. There's only a few days left before he goes to the cross to give his life a ransom for all. That was the mission why he came. The Bible says that he came not to serve himself, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. It says that he came to seek and save out those that were lost. Raise your hand if you've been lost. I know I can raise both hands. I've been lost. Jesus came on a mission to seek those of us who have been lost out so that we may be found in him. Amen? And Jesus displayed that there was no accident that led him to the cross. It was not some sort of accident that was leading up to this moment where he would be betrayed by Judas, where he would be arrested by the Roman soldiers, that he would be brought through a mock trial in front of the Pharisees and religious leaders of the Jews, and that he'd ultimately appear before Pontius Pilate and be condemned to death. It was not like this was an accident. This was God in the flesh He was the one orchestrating and allowing these events to happen to himself. Why? Because he wanted to display his power. His power, his resurrection power. His power to forgive sins. His power to rise from the dead and to ascend into heaven. You know, there's been a guy that flew. If you read into Acts, you'll see that Jesus was standing amongst the disciples after his resurrection. And it says that they started going, what's going on? He just took off and flew up into heaven. I want to be there for that scene. I would have been like, I got the pajamas. I can go too. The reality is that Jesus is the supernatural God. Amen? Let's look at Luke chapter 21 together. Let's examine this a little further. Jesus is the real deal. He's the ultimate superhero. He is is God in, in the flesh. 
And he's, he's going to display some of these powers even here in Luke chapter 21. The power to discern someone's heart. Anybody have that power? Anybody ever think, what's, what is somebody else thinking? You ever, you ever been there where you're like, I wish I could like see into their brain or into their heart and discern what exactly is going through their mind? Because you can see the outward things, right? As human beings, we can see the outward. But sometimes we struggle with like, where's the motive? What's really going on? What's the backstory? Jesus displays in Luke 21 that power, the power to see beyond what the rest of us see and look right into the human heart to know the full story of someone's background and be able to discern that. That's supernatural. And then he goes beyond that in Luke 21 and he begins to describe events that are going to take place far into the future. Be able to prophesy, be able to see things that are going to happen clearly way beyond his time, or so it seems, his time on earth. Jesus displays supernatural power. Luke 21, verse 1. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. I want to paint the scene of where he's at. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. He had been visiting the temple every day since his um, coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He had spent time teaching. He had spent time, the first thing he did is he came and he cleansed the temple. Do you remember? In anger, righteous anger, right? Righteous indignation. He comes and says, what are you guys doing? My father's house is to be a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of thieves. And he drives the money changers out in righteous anger. And then he spends time healing and, and teaching, and, and, and he's spending time focusing his heart on the people that he's come to save. It, it's as if he's given them one last opportunity to respond. Please turn your hearts to me. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. And let me, let me describe a little bit about the temple, because the temple's a very interesting structure. Herod had invested a lot of money into appeasing the Jews, building up this temple. And he had, he had poured a lot of money into it, and the temple kind of had these layers to it. There was, a, there was the court of Gentiles. In other words, there was a place outside the temple walls where there was about a three-foot-high fence. And if you were a Gentile, someone who was not a Jew, you had to stop there. It was in three different languages written on the, the gates that entered that area. If you were not a Jew and you entered this area... You just signed your own death warrant. We have the right to kill you. You're forbidden to enter unless you're a Jew. And then you could enter, if you, if you got past that because you're a Jew, you could enter. And, and inside the first little courtyard was called the court of women. And it's in that court of women that this scene takes place. This is where women were allowed to go, but they could go no further. Because further than that was just the court of men. And then you had the court of Levites. Then you had the court of priests. And then in the inner sanctuary, you had the, only the high priest could enter one time a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he could sprinkle the blood of the, the sacrificed lamb onto the altar as a way to say, God, will you cover our sins for one more year? And so the, the temple was kind of this structure where unless you had the right credentials, you couldn't enter very far. And yet it was interesting because the offering, the place to drop your offering, was right there in the court of women. They still wanted women to give. They still wanted women to be able to contribute. So they're like, well, we better put the offering out here where the women can come and give their offering as well. And it's there that it says that Jesus was kind of standing opposite this place where the offerings were given in the court of women. And he's watching. He's just observing. I think he's discerning, like, where are these offerings truly coming from, from these people? These people who, who call my name, who, who with their lips they honor me. But everything that I'm discerning is their hearts are just so far from me. And he began to just watch. And his disciples were probably like, why is he hanging out in the court of women? Let's go in where the cool guys are and let's go into the court of men, the court of gentlemen. Let's get away from these women and Gentiles. But they hang out because Jesus is in charge, and so they're with him. And he, verse 2, he also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Now, these coins were lepta or lepton, 
the singular, lepta, or multiple coins. They were Greek copper coins, and they were worth one one-hundredth of a drachma. A drachma was a silver Greek coin. So these were copper, copper being cheaper than silver. Silver, the drachma, was about 90% of a denarii, and a denarii was a day's wages. So for today's money, it would be like she dropped in two quarters into the offering plate. About like two quarters. If you consider a day's wage just being about $100, right? And uh, uh, one one one-hundredth of that is only a dollar. She dropped in a few coins. So So in terms of like supporting the temple and all the things that it was made of, and all the material costs that went into it, and the priests that had to serve there, and they had to earn a living, and all the things. I mean, this seemed to be like minute for actually meaning anything. Especially to the disciples who saw this. I'm sure they're like, they had seen a lot bigger gifts come come through. In verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. That had to be shocking to the disciples. They're like, can you see clearly, Jesus? Because she just dropped in like two little copper coins. She dropped in 50 cents. I've seen like hundreds of dollars come in today. Why are you saying that? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. You need to explain. Verse 4, he does. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live live on. All she had to live on. The widow's might doesn't represent the least that we can give, but the most, our very all. Jesus isn't concerned with how much money comes into the offering plate. He's concerned with where that is. Is coming from in terms of a sacrifice in our own lives. You know, it's not, it's not just the portion that we give, it's the proportion. You guys understand that? What's coming into your life? What has God blessed you with? He's looking for a generous gift in response by faith, saying, God, I recognize that all that you've given me is a blessing. It's not from me. You have blessed me with hands strong enough to work, with an able body, with an able mind. You're the one in control of who I am, and you've blessed me with life. You've blessed me with abundance. And so out of faith, out of showing that I rely on you for everything, I'm going to give back a generous proportion of what you've given me. Now, this generosity is mind-blowing. This generosity is off the scale. This is her giving everything she had. And Jesus noted it. Jesus saw that, and he was amazed. See, men see what is given, but God sees what is left. And by that measure, he measures the gift and the conditions of our heart. Listen to Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus' words earlier in our story He says this, Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, Jesus says, if you want blessing from me, well, I'm going to use the same measuring cup, if you will, to pour blessing into your life as you give to me. So if you give me the little teaspoon, you're going to get little teaspoons of blessing. Why would we just want teaspoons of blessings when we could have pools worth of blessing coming from our God? Anybody want a pool full of blessing from, coming down from God, from heaven, from the all-powerful one? I do. Amen? But yet we withhold. We go, well, things are tight right now. i got to pay my, like, smud bill. PG&E is really rough. They're burning down California. What's going on? And we start obsessing about all the things where we feel like we're, we're running short. Do you see an obsession about like paying all our bills here from this widow? Or do you see an obsession to realize like who can really take care of my life? It's the all-powerful, supernatural one. 
and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to give him my all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 instructs the church on how to give. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Those are the churches in Thessalonica, in Galatia, in some of the areas in what is modern-day Greece. In the midst of a very severe trial, it wasn't like their lives were easy. They were going through a tough time. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. He's commending those churches' generosity and he's challenging the church in Corinth to match that, to be as generous as what he had seen in Macedonia. Entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. You see, their hearts were saying, we need to give to God, and we want to support you, Paul, as well, your ministry. You're a missionary. And that sets an example for the church to follow. We are to give first of all to the Lord, and then we are to give generously to those that are doing the Lord's work. To support the things in in our world that that are blessing God's heart. My wife and I, when we got married, we made a decision. We're gonna give. I was a college student. I was broke. My wife was working full time. She was the breadwinner at the time. We didn't have a lot of extra. As a matter of fact, there was one time where we didn't buy a max pass, which is like the light rail pass up in Portland, because we didn't have enough money. It was like, I forget, 60 bucks, 80 bucks, something like that. We were just so tight. But we had made a commitment. We're going to give to God. And the one time my wife gets searched on the max, riding down into downtown, was the one time that I said, we just can't buy the pass. Sorry, babe. Like, how many times have they searched you? Never right? Never. Oh, well, then this thing's a farce. Like, they'll never. Sure enough, the cop comes up, and I hear all about it when she gets home that day. But because I guess she winked at him or something, she got off. She got off, but I I ran down, and we had to buy the pass, and we didn't eat groceries, but then God provided groceries into our lives. It was, I can't even explain how awesome God is. But the reality is that when we commit to give to him, he takes care of us, does he not? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Paul continues writing to the church in Corinth in this letter. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You each must decide in your own hearts how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. If the only reason you're given is because Pastor Matt got up here and pressured me into it, don't give. God doesn't want that gift. God doesn't need that gift. God doesn't need any of our gifts. He's God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need us. Why does he ask us to give? Why would a God who's rich ask us, who are seemingly poor, to give to him? And to give to his kingdom, it's for our sake. It's not for his. It's for our sake. He knows us. He knows how easy we can stray from from a dependence and an affection of him. And he wants us to understand that when we give to him, we are by faith placing our trust in him to provide for all our needs. That's what it's all about. It's for us. He's a good, good father, and he knows that we need to depend on him. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He knows us, and that leads to our first principle. When it comes to generosity and giving, Jesus is not impressed by the size of our gift, but rather the measure of our faith. Amen? He's not impressed by the size of our gift. There's no gift that can like impress God. The streets of heaven are made from gold. I don't think we're gonna impress them with our gift. 
But at the same time, he's looking for the measure of our faith. And yes, the proportion of our gift to what's left over determines the measure of our faith. If I give one penny and and $500,000 is left over, there's no faith in that. There's no faith in that. Come on. But if I give $5 and I have five left over to live on, there's a lot of faith in that. There's a huge measure of faith in that. I would have every excuse, humanly speaking, to go, I can't give this month. I only got 10 bucks. Good luck. I should be panhandling. But instead, this widow, who all she had to live on was a few cents, was willing to put it all on the offering in the temple. And Jesus saw it. And Jesus commends it because of the measure of the faith that he has that day. Verse 5, as some were talking about the temple complex, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. See, it's almost like they missed the point of what Jesus just said. Jesus, I mean, this temple's amazing. Look at all these stones. That must, that must cost like a million dollars to put that there, that little ornate little thing that, oh, beautiful. Look at it. Oh, man. The widow, she, she didn't pay for all of this. What you just described, that didn't get us to the point where we're at with this beautiful complex that we have to worship our God. They were impressed with the temple and how beautiful it was decorated and dedicated over to God. And Jesus responds, he said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. That, that must have been a shock to the Jewish people. This, he was talking, Jesus was talking about the center of their worship. God was pleased with them, obviously, right? We have this beautiful temple. We're doing the things that God instructed us to do in the Old Testament to worship him. Jesus sees through it all and says, no, you're not. You're not worshiping me. You're rejecting me. Are you kidding? I'm the very one that God sent to rescue you. And you've, you've rejected me. You've turned your, your heart away from me. And so there's going to be punishment. There's going to be a change that's going to take place. This temple that you guys admire, this is not what God wants you to fixate your hearts on. God wants you to fixate your heart on his son, and here I am. And yet you've missed it. All of you, you've missed it. That widow, she didn't miss it. That widow, her heart was in the right place. But there were so many that weren't. And so Jesus has to give them a a dose of reality, a dose of, again, this supernatural ability to see what nobody else could see. He could see the future. He told them the day would come when this beautiful Jewish temple would be demolished. He had already announced that the city would be destroyed back in Luke chapter 19. But now he specifically mentions the destruction of their precious temple. Verse 7, teacher. They asked him, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things that are about to take place? The Bible describes what takes place here as the Olivet Discourse. So I'm going to back it up a second and show you why. It says that Jesus left the temple. In Mark chapter 13 and in Matthew 24, they're called parallel passages. There are other perspectives on the same event. And it describes what Jesus did. It says he, having left the temple, he retreated to the Mount of Olives. It's it's a small hill, a few hundred feet high, that overlooks the temple east of Jerusalem. He had gone up there with his disciples, and it says that he retreated away, and there were only four disciples with him. Mark chapter 13 names those four disciples. Peter and Andrew, they were brothers, and James and John, they were also brothers. Four of the disciples were with him. It was like this private conversation. And I'm sure it was on all the disciples' minds. Why did he say the things that he said in the temple? Why is he driving people out of the temple with whips? What is going on with our Messiah? With our Savior? What is he thinking? So they say, hey, when you guys get alone with him, you guys seem to have the best relationship with this guy. Why don't you ask him the questions? And so they do. Teacher. When will these things happen? What will be the sign that all these things are going to take place? 
In other words, they're asking him, when is the temple going to be destroyed, Jesus? What's the sign of you? You're talking about this coming. You talk about going away and coming back. What's the sign of, of the coming? And what's the sign that we can understand when the end of the age is going to take place? And so those questions frame what we read in the following verses, because Jesus begins to answer it. And let me just say this, that because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, and Matthew and Mark are writing to a Jewish audience, there's some differences in what the emphasis is. It's not like Jesus had a different conversation that Luke records. But Luke, having a different audience, decides to emphasize some things more And Matthew and Mark emphasize other things that are pertinent to the Jewish people more. And so we see that there's even layers within what Jesus describes. There's layers of fulfillment, things that happen first and things that are still further out on the horizon. It's very similar to the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a lot of prophecies where some of those things happen right away. In the book of Isaiah, you'll remember, chapter 7, verse 14, it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth. You guys remember that prophecy? And they will call him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And yet, in Isaiah, Isaiah's own lifetime, there was the sign that happened where a young woman gave birth. And there was a naming. But, but further out on the horizon was the idea that there would be one who, come, who would come And the gospel writers looking back on Isaiah say, when Jesus was born of the virgin, that fulfills Isaiah. And they recognize that that prophecy had more than just a near fulfillment. It had a further fulfillment, further down the road. And so that's how prophecy works. Now, let me give you quickly an Old Testament summary because they were operating with some things in their minds. And a lot of times in the church, we don't have those same things in our minds, not being Old Testament scholars. Any of you guys Old Testament scholars? Might have a few in here. How many have read the entire Old Testament without getting bogged down in Leviticus? Right? Yeah. So let me just tell, tell you this. There, here's some of the history. In 586 BC, the Babylonians sieged Jerusalem. They took Daniel and a lot of other Jews captive into Babylonia. Well, Jeremiah was the prophet at the time, and he's watching as God's judgment is poured out on his people. He writes the book of Jeremiah. He writes Lamentations, where he laments over the judgment that God is pouring out. Let's read a little section of Jeremiah, chapter 29. This is what the disciples would have had in their minds. Starting at verse 10, uh, Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah is writing a prophecy. 70 years you're going to be in Babylon. But after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to be faithful to not completely wipe you out, but to bring you back, to bring back a remnant, to fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the the covenant promises that God had given his people, the Jews. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Sure enough, we read in history that in 516 B.C., There's a remnant that comes back into the city. God is faithful to his promise. Under King Cyrus, you can read about it in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And later, King Darius, they were Persian kings that the people were still under the influence. The Babylonian Empire had had fallen, and now the Medes and the Persians had risen into power. But the Jews found favor in King Cyrus and King Darius' eyes. 
And you can read about it in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, Ezra, chapter 6. And they're given permission to go back in and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. To restore and rebuild the Jerusalem. Uh, and then we need to understand Daniel chapter 9, real quick. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel, who was carried away from his homeland into Babylon, gets a vision from God, and he writes these words. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin. In other words, for sin to be dealt with, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to, the, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that decree was given by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that happened about 450 B.C. From the time that you're given permission to go in, you remember in Nehemiah, what was he given permission to do by King Artaxerxes? He was given permission to go in and restore the walls around the city, to rebuild the infrastructure of Jerusalem. Daniel says, from that time until Messiah the Prince, who's that? That's Jesus, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Weeks in that day were, were, were another way to say years. It'll be 69 sets of sevens worth of years. How many years is that? Any mathematicians in here? 69 times seven? Anybody know? 483. That was close, Ron. <laughs> 69 times seven is 483. Well, guess what? 450 B.C., Plus 483 years ends right about 33 AD, right? Give or take. There's some calendar issues, but still, we know that God is faithful to Daniel here to give him a picture of what would happen. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Was the city rebuilt in difficult times? How many of you guys have ever read through Nehemiah? Was it easy or were they being persecuted? It says at one point they have a shovel in one hand and they have a sword in the other. That's difficulty. They have to put watchmen out because there is persecution coming against. Satan is not interested in the plans of God being fulfilled, is he? No, he continues to oppose God. The people of the coming prince, this is in verse, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 26, verse 26. After those 62 weeks, so the first seven and then 62 more, so that's a total of 69. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. It'll appear that the Messiah came to nothing. Is that what it appeared to our world? Do they go, wow, Jesus, he must be the Messiah. He must be the king. He must be the one that ushers in righteousness. Is our world praising Jesus right now? No, it's like, well, that dude died. He's gone. Yeah, he was some good teacher. He sounded like he left some good things behind and he was kind of a nice guy. But there was nothing special about him. There was nothing that amounted from him. And yet right here in this audience sits evidence of Jesus and the power that he has. Because what are we all doing here right now on a Sunday morning? We're worshiping this Jesus. He didn't have nothing. It appeared as if he had nothing. It'll appear as he came to naught. The people of the coming prince, who's that? The coming prince. Who's the prince of this world right now? Who has the authority of this world? Who is, who is moving and shaking in this world behind the scenes? It's Satan. The people of the coming prince, Satan, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Satan was the author of what happened in 70 AD. He was the one moving in the world to destroy God's people, to scatter them among the nations, to take away the promises that God had given to them. He's always at work trying to kill, still, and destroy. Rome was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus. You can read about it. It's in all the history books. 
They came and besieged the city. They starved them out. They built a wall around their wall, and they wouldn't allow anybody past their wall. Well, guess what? When your resources start to run out, you start to starve in the city. Because all of their farmland, where they got their produce, was outside the walls of the city. They had to farm the land and bring it in, or else they starved. The Romans knew that. They were like, we'll just build a wall around their wall. They'll never get past our wall, and we'll starve them out. Josephus records that a woman would eat her own child, would cut them up and eat them because they were starving so bad. You can imagine the desperation in 70 AD. Why did this come upon the Jews? Why did this come upon Jerusalem? It was because of what Jesus says here. They rejected the Messiah. The, or his, is another uh, proper translation of the word here. This is in verse 26 of Daniel. His, meaning Satan's end, will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war and desolations are decreed. He, speaking of Satan through the Antichrist or the false Messiah, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Daniel wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus speaks. And now Jesus is about to explain how this is all going to come about. Read with me. We're back in Luke chapter 21, verse 8. Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, those things must take place first. But the end won't come right away. What did Jesus just say? The end is not going to come immediately. He's speaking in 33 AD, 30 AD, somewhere in that range. And he's saying the end is not going to happen right away. There's going to be a long period of time, guys, in which there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be pestilence and problems and turmoil all over the world. There's going to be false religions that are brought into play, people claiming to be from God. Have we seen that throughout the last 2,000 years? Have we seen the abundance of false religions emerge in this world? We absolutely have. Then it says in verse 10, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. He goes, guys, I'm going to tell you how it's all going to end. Here's the signs you're going to see. You're going to see signs. He doesn't give us a specific sign, but he said there's going to be signs in the heavens. The earth is going to cry out. Do you realize that the earth is crying out for its redemption? The Bible tells us that it wants to be made new. It's going to have earthquakes and, and, and pestilence and disease and famine and, and all kinds of problems. How many hurricanes have we had this season? A lot. Is God surprised? No. He says the earth is going to cry out with all kinds of issues. Whether global warming is real or not, it doesn't matter. It's all coming to a culmination. This world is not our, our forever home. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And it's coming no matter what humans do. Whether we buy Teslas or not, it's going to come. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying just go throw all your litter outside, right? We are to be stewards of this planet as well. We are given responsibility as God's people to set an example of what stewardship looks like. But we should not be obsessed with trying to maintain this world. There will be violent earthquakes, famines, plagues, terrifying sights and great sights. But before all these things, Jesus just shifts. Before all these things, let me go back. Let me tell you kind of what you're looking for. You just asked that question about what's going to happen to the temple. Let me tell you. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. That happened with the disciples after Jesus left, gave his Holy Spirit on Pentecost and said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Were they persecuted? Have you read the book of Acts? Have you heard Paul's testimony? He was beaten, flogged, stoned, left for dead. The guy was persecuted. He was persecuting other Christians before that. His own testimony says, I was the worst of all. I was chasing down people who were following the way. Another type of Christians. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Read in the book of Acts. He was brought before King Festus and Felix, and ultimately he was brought to Caesar in Rome. Paul was. Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for you to witness. Was Paul able to be a witness? He says we're to be his ambassadors. What does that mean? His witnesses. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. I like this verse. I don't have to study. Right? He just gave me permission. Just be a faithful witness. And if this happens to you, Here's his promise. I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. God is going to be with us if we face this kind of persecution. He was with the disciples. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. James, the very guy who was with his brother John, the Bible tells us, He was run through by the sword. He was killed. He didn't even make it to see the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Many of the disciples faced martyrdom. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be lost. I love this verse. He just said, a lot of you are going to die, but not a hair on your head will be lost. What is he saying? He's saying, I got you in my hand. The enemy can't take you out of that secure position. No matter what this world does to you, death is not the end. There is something beyond death and nothing can take you out of my hand. Romans chapter 8, right? For I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor a lot of other things. I'm Joe Biden now. Like, you know the verse. Amen. Can ever take you out of my hand. For your, by your endurance, gain your lives. I love this picture. Just for those of you guys, and I'm running out of time, but if, for those of you guys who want to study this deeper, you can walk through this Olivet Discourse, this, this sermon, if you will, that was given on the Mount of Olives by Jesus to his disciples, and match up the things that happened here with Revelation chapter 6 as the seals begin to unfold. And it matches up almost like item for item. There's false Christs. That's Revelation 6, 1 and 2. There's wars, Revelation 6, 3 and 4. There's famines, Revelation 6, 5 and 6. There's death, Revelation 6, 7 and 8. There's martyrdom, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. There's worldwide chaos, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. John just gives you a a more descriptive picture of what this time is going to look like. But Jesus was letting his disciples know what was going to happen. Here's the point of the whole thing. Principle number two, when it comes to our priorities and affections, what were the disciples just obsessing about? How beautiful the stones of the temple were. When it comes to our obsessions our priorities, our affections. Jesus isn't concerned with preserving our comforts and traditions on earth. He's not concerned with that. We can be concerned with that. We get obsessed about that. We're like, but we gotta have this auditorium. We gotta have a nice courtyard. We can obsess about how important those things can be and we need to keep them in proper perspective, do we not? We just, just recently, we were t- we, this was not allowed to happen legally in the state of California. Did it end the church? No. We could move outside. God created the outdoors. We could worship him there. We could continue to go on. In China, there are Christians right now where it is not allowed to share the name of Jesus. Do they go, well, I guess we give up now? Nope. They continue to meet. They defy their king 
the communist government of China, and they continue to gather as God's people. Why? Because God said, you need to gather as my people. And they continue to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it costs many of them their lives. Jesus isn't concerned with preserving our comforts and traditions on earth, but rather increasing our devotion to him and to his eternal purposes. That's what he's really concerned with. Are you devoted to him? Are you devoted to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are you laying up your treasures in heaven? Verse 20. Why does it take so long to get through this passage? Verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. When did that happen? It happened in 67 AD. And by 70 AD, the city was taken. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. But when is it going to happen in the future? Because if you read Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13, Jesus seems to be talking about a distant reality. Not just what happened in 70 AD. That was the near reality. Luke focuses there because his audience is, is in large part Gentile. And they would know, oh yeah, what happened in 70 AD? I remember that happened. Remember when Titus sacked Jerusalem? Jesus spoke about that. Well, yes, that was one of the fulfillments, and Luke focuses there, but there's going to be another day where Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the world. It's a day still in the future, a day where God has gathered his people back together, he has given them a nation again, and there will become a day they're already not popular. Have you noticed that? How many friends do they have in the Middle East? Zero. They don't have friends in the Middle East. Everybody surrounding them hates them. Iran says, we want to just blow them into the sea. They've declared it like in the UN. They say, we want to just kill them. It says they'll be hated by all nations. The reality is there is a future fulfillment as well. But in this, in this one that Lucas focused on, verse 21, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the, uh, the country must not enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Jesus said there is going to be a time of the Gentiles. Where do we live right now? We live in the times of the Gentiles. Do you realize that? Ever since Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, Jesus himself, Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 11 that there's going to be an opportunity for the Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom. Aren't you, aren't you glad? That's what we call the church age. That's what we call this parenthetical period of time that exists between the focus on the Jewish nation back when Jesus came and this time where, again, there's going to be a focus around the Jewish nation. And we're getting close. How do I know that? Because there is a Jewish nation again. 1948, the Jewish nation began again, and God has been gathering his elect, his, his people, the Jews, back to the land ever since. We're living at the end of the time of the Gentiles, but we're still in it. God's grace still exists. Why doesn't he just finish it? What's taking him so long? Peter answers that question. He says he's not being slow concerning his promise, but he's being patient, wanting all men to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. Only God knows when every last heart has been closed off. Do you remember the days of Noah? What happened in the days of Noah? Every last heart was closed off. It says that only Noah and his family got on that ark. Was the invitation out there by Noah for a hundred years while he's building the ark? Come with us. God's going to destroy the world. Come, get on the ark. Yes, the invitation was out there. How many responded? Zero. They got on the ark. God closed the door. And then wrath fell from heaven. Do you know that the, there's going to be another act two 
where that takes place? Are we supposed to like cheer that the world gets that? No. We're supposed to have the heart of Jesus. What was the heart of Jesus? He's pleading with people, get on board. Please. I love you. I don't want you to have to suffer the wrath of God for your sins. I have provided salvation through my blood and through my death on the cross. We come to the close of our passage. Many of you guys are like, thank goodness. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring sea and waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the celestial powers will be shaken. In other words, the the world and everything around the world, the, the, the space, things are going to be falling onto the earth. It's going to be a horrific as this earth starts to come apart. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Is Jesus coming again? He just said he's coming again. But when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. What's the third principle? It's this, when it comes to our fears and our uncertainties, Jesus wants us to know that he's in control and that he's coming for his bride. He doesn't want us to fret, to worry, to be obsessed about, oh no, it's going to raise three more degrees in the next 50 years. We got to, no, that isn't where he wants us, us to obsess, to freak out about. No, he wants our hearts focused on our mission. What's our mission? To be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Have you been an ambassador this week? Have you shared with anyone? Have you told anyone the hope that you have in Christ? That's my challenge. Don't worry. Lift up your eyes to heaven. Pray to your loving Father and trust your life to him who holds you in his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this word this morning. God, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. God, but I pray that it made an impact on us. God, your words are powerful. Your words are true. And God, we just thank you for the supernatural power of Jesus Christ that overcame death and the grave. God, that that foretold the future, that could see into men's and women's hearts. God, that's true power. That's a superhero worth admiring, worth investing in. God, help us to be your people at this time in your world to be all that you want us to be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.